Lord, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And Father, we pray that as we look at this glorious book of the history of your salvation and where it begins, we pray, Father, that you would speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray that our hearts would be the good soil to receive this Word, that it may produce a harvest amongst us, a thirty and a sixty and a hundredfold. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We shall be looking at uh, different parts of the book of Exodus. If you look at your outlines, uh, you can see uh, the five parts that are there. And we'll be flipping through quite a bit. So if you just can put your, your, turn your Bibles to Exodus 1, and that's where we will all begin. Exodus paints us a picture about God. That's what the book of Exodus reveals to us. Has the picture of God formed in our minds? What does Exodus reveal to us about God? Who is this God? What is he like? What are his attributes? Now, God reveals himself to his bride, Israel, in terms of the law, the prophets, and the writings. And this was the way in which her faith was informed. And the book that we're going to be looking at, the book of Exodus, falls into the category we call the law. And within this category, we can divide it into two large categories. One being primordial history, the beginning of time, that is from Genesis 1 to 11. And the second being the origins of the nations of Israel, of the nation of Israel, when God calls Abraham from Genesis 12 onwards. And everything from Genesis 12 to the end of Deuteronomy has to do with God's dealing with Israel and how in return she would treat God by her obedience to his law. Now, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, the second book of the law after Genesis. And Exodus is the most important book in the Old Testament if we want to understand salvation history. A thread that moves right from the Old Testament to the New. Exodus is to the Old Testament people of God what the gospel is to the Christian. Exodus shows us who God is and how the Israelites come to know him and depend on him through the facilitation of a human mediator, a human mediator chosen by God, a people that was to be shaped by God's character, holy, separate, distinct. Now the vineyards in the book of Exodus move along these lines. They start by Israel being in slavery under an oppressive pharaoh, and it moves on concluding with a picture of worship. And a large part of Exodus is devoted to the establishment of Israel's, Israel's cultic form of worship, in particular where the building of the tabernacle is concerned. The whole goal of this great salvific act of God in the Old Testament called the Exodus was so that the Israelites could worship and serve God, continuing the covenant relationship God had with them. 
if you look at your outlines, we can see five vineyards. And they help us understand the book of Exodus better. We will look at the vineyard one by one. And in the end, they must bring us to a point where we can understand the great and sovereign God of the Exodus. The first vineyard we're going to be looking at is Moses, the mediator. Friends, have we ever been in trouble? Have we ever been in trouble waiting for deliverance? Have we ever asked during those times of hardship and tribulation, where is God? In times like these, have we ever asked ourselves, will God get me out of this? What we need is the correct answer to these questions. And the correct answer to these questions help us endure whatever we are going through. In Exodus 1, verse, verses, 80, uh, verses 8 to 21, we see that the great suffering had come to God's people. In Exodus 13, 1, 13, we read, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The king of Egypt was opposing the God of the universe and his chosen people through whom all blessings would flow to the rest of the world. The life of an Israelite slave was one of bondage. It was enforced ruthlessly without mercy. We live in a world like that of Exodus 1. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there is chaos. Everything is chaotic. The opposition against God looks very strong. And the powers of evil always go against God. What was God's solution to this problem? What was God's solution to this problem? In chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, God says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, out of that land to a good and broad land. He sees the predicament that his people are going through. And he calls Moses to get them out. And he says in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That was the whole purpose of the Exodus. These people were slaves in Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, they moved from being slaves in Egypt to worship the God of the universe. That is the theological progression of this whole book. 
a God who sees the suffering of his people and he comes in through his mediator Moses to save them, to bring them out of slavery. A God who is covenanted with his people. A God who is compassionate toward the cries of his people. That is who this God is. He's compassionate and he hears the cries of his people. And when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and before he goes, God speaks to him and tells him in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, but when I, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by great acts of judgment. Sure enough, when he tells Pharaoh what God is asking him to do, what does arrogant Pharaoh turn around and say? Arrogant Pharaoh, who is the king of the most powerful nation on earth at this point in time, turns around and asks him in Exodus chapter 5, verses 2, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Who is the Lord? I don't know this God of yours. Who is he? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is this God? And we see in the next few chapters, a display of God's magnificent, almighty and sovereign power from chapters 7 to 11, power like we have never seen it before. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and caused plagues to come upon the Egyptians in judgment. And out of the ten plagues, the first two which were the water turning into the blood and the plague of frogs were matched equally by Egyptian magicians. Can you imagine? He performs, the pharaoh, uh, he performs the miracle in the name of the Lord and these magicians are equally performing the miracles. But it stops after the second one. Because you know why? The miracles come to a point, a theological axis that is in total control of nature. A, a sovereign God who is creator of the universe. And that's what the magicians can't match anymore. They can go to a point, the second miracle, that's about it. And after that, they turn around and tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. That means those miracles that were performed... They were the finger of God. In the 10th plague, in chapter 11, verses 1, the Lord says to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. God was going to take the lives of every Egyptian firstborn and there was going to be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt like never before. 
And God institutes the Jewish Passover, commemorating this great act of salvation of God's people in the Old Testament. The tenth plague takes place, and every firstborn Egyptian dies in God's judgment. And in chapter 12, verses 31 to 32, he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up and go out from among my people, both of you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And now in chapter 14, verses 5 to 7, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, now something weird happens. Pharaoh lets them go at one point, and when they're actually going away, and they're probably almost gone, he changes his mind. He changes his mind, and he he finally suddenly realizes, hey, there's no more slaves in Egypt, huh? So we've got to do all the hard work now. And he goes after them. He changes his mind, and he goes after them. Moses tells the Israelites when they panic and grumble in chapter 14, verses 13, verse 13, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, and he will work for you today. For the Egyptians you will see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What happens here? The Red Sea opens up with the water pushing back from the Israelites to cross the water of the Red Seas. And suddenly the Red Sea comes back when the Egyptians are going through it. The Egyptians were dead on the seashore, the most powerful nation on the earth. In the song of Moses in Exodus 15, verse 1, we get the outcome of this event. And he says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. A God who has all the power to go against the forces of evil, to save his people by performing a mighty act of redemption. He heard their cry. He elected a mediator through whom he saves them, and now he gives them his law. If the nation of Israel was going to be God's people through the covenant he makes with them, they as his people respond to that great act of salvation by being obedient to his law. He brings them to the wilderness of Sinai, to the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And when they are at Sinai, God calls Israel to be faithful to his covenant. He speaks with them and says, you yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I borne you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you are indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation 
And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Which brings us to our fourth point, a mountain wrapped in smoke. In chapter 19, verse 18 to 20, we read, Now Mount Sinai was, Sinai, Sinai was wrapped in, in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kill, and a whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Friends, just picture this in your mind, okay? The God who speaks to his people and gives them his law after saving them. You know, that salvation that God acquired for them had implications. And those implications were being obedient to who God is and his laws. If your salvation was real, then obedience would be the thing that follows through. The Almighty God is present at Sinai and speaks first to Moses and then to the people through Moses. He gives them the Ten Commandments along with other statutes and commandments. And the first commandment went like this. This is how we know that everything that God gives in terms of the law is a response to his great act of salvation already given. He starts the commandments like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. The salvation comes before the commandment. The salvation comes before the commandment. Not the other way around, okay? The other way around, we'll be in trouble. Right? God's law for God's people. The words of the law originate in God, the God who spoke the words in Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, and the people to whom the words were addressed were those who had been brought out of the house of slavery. They were already liberated. They were saved. If the Israelites were his people, they would have to obey his law. They are holy because God is holy. And as the holy people of God, they keep his laws. Which brings us to our next point. These are your gods, O Israel. Now God sees the cries of his people. God chooses a mediator. And the mediator helps them through, gets them out of Egypt. He saves them through that mighty act of salvation. He gives them the law. And suddenly we see a problem. In the book of Exodus, 32 verses 1 to 4, we read, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are yours 
that are in the years of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the years and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, listen to this carefully, okay? And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine that? They saw that great act in the Exodus, the great act of salvation. And just for a while, they had this change of heart already. And they made this image. And they said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Can you imagine that? After having the Lord speak from Mount Sinai and agreeing to keep his covenant, Israel becomes impatient with the length of time. Moses is up on the mountain. And they break the covenant by making an idol and worshipping it with offerings and a feast. With offerings and a feast. Their words and actions were clearly out of accord with both the first and the second commandment. Friends, I want you to listen carefully to this, okay? They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the calf, which happened to be the same offerings they made to the Lord on the base of Mount Sinai. How appalling is that? You offer these offerings to the holy and living God, and at the same time you make this image called this golden calf, and you make the same kind of offerings. To the calf. Moses, the mediator between God and Israel, makes intercession, and God is gracious, and Moses makes new tablets, and the covenant is renewed. Now, that's a picture of grace, right? They, God saves them. God gives them his law. He calls them, you are kingdom of peace. You are my holy nation. And they go into this trajectory of idolatry. And God still has mercy on them. Because of his covenant faithfulness. Now that is who God is. They go after an idol. They make an idol out of gold. But God still has mercy. And he's still basing his dealings with them based on a covenant. That is who God is. The whole point of the Exodus is for us to see who this God is. And this is a picture that we ought to get. A God who is unconditionally merciful because of his covenant, because of the faithfulness of his covenant. We see a God who is absolutely faithful to his covenant and forgives his people and still allows them to go into the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we have come to our final point for today, the God who tabernacles with his people. Now, the idea of divine indwelling 
is fundamental to biblical tradition. The story of the tabernacle begins at Sinai, at the ratification of the covenant in Exodus 24, and directions for its construction follows in Exodus 25 to 31. It's elaborate and it serves several purposes. The whole tabernacle serves several purposes. It is the place where God in his midst, God is in the midst of his people. That is where God, that's, that's, that's what makes these people special. That's what this be, makes these people holy. It's not through some abstract holiness that they acquire by themselves. It is the very fact that there is a divine, powerful presence with Israel. And that is what makes them a priesthood of believers, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Not through their own efforts. It is the God who dwells in them, dwells in them and dwells with them, who makes them holy, makes them separate, makes them distinct. That is how Israel is called, a nation called to be separate. Because God is separate and his people are separate. It is the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. It also serves as the place for divine revelation. And it is here that the sacrifice are of, sacrifices are offered and atonement is made. Friends, the tabernacle is the central feature of the Bible. It is God dwelling with his people that makes them the people of God. Now we come back to the questions we were asking in the beginning. Has the picture of God formed in our minds? What has Exodus revealed to us about God? And who is this God? And what is he like? And what are his attributes? to all that we have seen today. Firstly, we see a God who sees the suffering of his people and he comes in through a mediator, Moses, to save them, to bring them out of slavery. A God who is covenanted with his people. A God who is compassionate towards the cries of his people. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, a God who has all the power to go against the forces of evil to save his people by performing a mighty act of redemption. That's the second thing we see. Thirdly, we see a God who is absolutely faithful to his covenant and forgives his people and still allows them to go into the land of promise because he has made a covenant with them. And lastly, a picture of absolute grace. God dwelling with his people and that makes them the special people of God. In conclusion, what does the Exodus mean to the New Testament people of God? What does Exodus mean to us? We, we are living on this side of the cross. What does Exodus mean to us? It is a book that shows us who God is in his mighty act of salvation, his distinctiveness, his holiness. That is what we get from the book of Exodus. In our New Testament passage that we read just now, at his transfiguration, Jesus is present, present uh, as undertaking a new Exodus. 
Exodus, we see Moses and Elijah, uh, a new Exodus, we see Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory speaking to him about his departure. And that word departure uh, in the English uh, New Testament, uh, in the Greek is called the Exodus. That is what the word departure actually means. His future death, his resurrection as his and his ascension. Friends, the salvation in the book of Exodus prefigures Christ. When you look at the book of Exodus, we, we didn't have time to actually exhaust all the Christocentric uh, influences uh, that Exodus actually brings out. Uh, you can probably do that in a Bible study. But the whole of Exodus foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. Anywhere you look in Exodus, when you look at the, at the beginning of Exodus, we see a mediator. And we see a mediator that actually prefigures Christ. There's this problem with the, with the government in Egypt and the king wants to kill all the male children. Same thing happened in the time of Jesus. We see a mediator chosen by God to be the, the connecting factor between God and man. What else do we see? We see the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. A lamb without blemish. And John calls the Lord Jesus in John 1, look, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. When you look at the Ten Commandments, there's only one person in all the earth who has actually fulfilled the Ten Commandments the way God intended for it to be fulfilled. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, when you look at the tabernacle, He is the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is the meeting place between God and man. Friends, the salvation in the book of Exodus prefigures Christ. Everything we see in the book of Exodus points to Christ. I say this metaphorically. The Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for bringing us through the book of Exodus. Thank you for showing us the kind of God you actually are. Powerful, same time compassionate and merciful. A God who brings his purpose exactly the way he wants it to, to become. And Father, we just pray that our knowledge of you will increase as we reflect on this great book. That we may know you better and by knowing you better we may love you more. And by loving you more, we may give more of ourselves to you in service. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.